Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast, and I'm your host, Munkovel Suchlave. So today's topic is inspired by the fact that um, we have a fellow who's graduating, and um, as many of you who listen to this podcast are graduating interventional endoscopists, or um, and maybe even some intervention uh, general gastroenterology fellows are uh, listening as well, but I just compiled some thoughts and uh, pearls of wisdom, I guess, if you would, uh, for a graduating fellow. Um, and this is kind of stuff that I tell my fellows throughout their one year with me, but I was just sitting there thinking about it. We had uh, his graduation. A shout out to him, Dr. Na Duong. He's an excellent fellow, one of the best I've ever trained in He's going to be going to Bay State in uh, Massachusetts, and they're getting an excellent endoscopist. But, you know, as I was kind of reflecting on the year and things that um, I could do better and things that um, I learned as uh, being a teacher, um, I thought about some of the things that I, I would advise him. You know, and a lot of times when you're uh, the attending on an interventional service or I guess any attending for any fellowship or residency, uh, you're, you feel like um, you're the elder sibling. Sometimes if there's a big enough age gap, you feel like you're their parent. But, um, you know, and, and we all look up to our mentors for advice. And as a mentor, we try to give our mentees advice. So hopefully this is something that most of you would already know. But if you don't and you learn something, that's even better. Um, so my first thing that I tell everybody is you're going to be busy whenever you take a job. And a lot of times I'll get a call from a former fellow or uh, maybe a friend, and they're really kind of distraught. You know, they say, Dr. Suchdave, I started a job and I'm not busy. Um, I, I, you know, I've been on the job for three months and I'm only seeing... 10 people in a day at the most or five people and I'm only getting one or two ERCPs a week, don't worry about it. It'll fix itself. You know, you take care of your patients and you do a good job, but that will grow. But the thing that you don't remember is you're never going to be as free as you are in the first three months of your job. You're, once you start working and once you start seeing people and, and, and you do a good job and you take care of people well, um, <clears throat> you're going to get more referrals and eventually you're going to be so busy. You don't know what to do with yourself. So enjoy the free time, enjoy the light time because that's not coming back. You'll never be as free as you are in the first few months of private practice or academic practice. I should say either one. Um, take a break. You know, even if you haven't signed a contract or you have, my advice is take a month or two off. I know the finances may not work out for a lot of people and they really need to start paying their loans and their debts and things like that. But, you know, if you're starting your fellowship, maybe work with your significant other or if you're single, save some money so that you can afford to take a month or two off because most of you guys have been working nonstop from the first day of undergraduate school. You've been working your tails off in undergrad, then you went to medical school, and then you did rotations, then you did residency, you got caught in that rat race there, and then you ended up fellowship, and then you wanted to be an interventionalist, et cetera. I mean, you're at the end of that road for the most part. Take a little break. Enjoy some time off. For those of you who have a desire to learn third space endoscopy better, 
or or ESD better. Maybe you can look at taking a vacation to Japan or Germany or, or China and, you know, live there for two months, learn ESD, but also experience new culture. Again, you're going to be so busy at some one point in your career that you're, you're going to wish that you weren't. And this is the time to take care of yourself. Also, for those of you who are married or have kids, it's kind of a time to make it up to your kids and your spouse. You know, um, the last year of your training, you've been uber busy, probably starting most days at 6 a.m. and getting home most days at 7 or 8 p.m. Probably a nice time to make it up to them. We could take a vacation if you can or, or just spend time with them. You know, go to a four-year-old's soccer game and watch a bunch of kids run around after a ball like like a school of fish chasing a, a couple of flakes or whatever. So just take that time off, make it up to your family. When you do start and you get working, um, many of you are extremely competent and you are extremely good at what you do. And, and many of you are already phenomenal. I'm, I'm sure there's people out there who are better endoscopists than their attendings or in, in myself and et cetera. But remember that when you're new to a community, whether it's academic or whether it's private, if you make a mistake in your first two or three months, it's going to take a long time to recover from that mistake in terms of getting referrals back. If you know Dr. X sends you a patient and you have a perforation because you were super aggressive with something, and I'm just using that as an example, he's going to think he or she's going to think twice before um, referring to you again. So I always advise my fellows, as much as that temptation is there in the first six months, and you know you're sitting there and it's maybe third or three months into the job and, and you see a beautiful opportunity to do a, a lambs-assisted gastrogenostomy. I mean, I'm not saying to not do that procedure, but I am saying to think twice before you do it. Get comfortable, get a good reputation, be smart about the cases you choose to do in the first six months. In other words, don't bite off more than you can chew. Know your limitations and get comfortable with what you're comfortable at and, and get a reputation out there that you take good care of patients. Once you do that, then you're going to be able to expand your practice. And you'll also be able to, you know, create some goodwill with your uh, physicians as you do a good job. And then if you do have that complication, which you will have, and all of you will have it, and it's going to happen, and just be ready for it. But if it happens a little bit later after you join, your reputation will be a little bit better. Again, not asking you or advising anybody to practice defensive medicine, but at the same time, I'm just saying be a little bit wise about what you choose to do in the first three to six months on a new job. Um, to that end, it will help you a lot to get involved in the hospital as soon as you can. And, or into the group and, and get ingrained in those politics. I'm not, again, you don't have to be a super political person in the hospital, but if you start to meet people, participate in some low level or entry level committees and, you know, start getting involved in decision making processes in your endo lab, et cetera, it'll make your life a lot easier as your career progresses. Um, I think oftentimes, you know, we, we, we are there and we say, you know, we just want to be taking care of patients and doing good work. And, and again, that's what we should be doing. But 
you know, you're as an interventionalist and wherever you go, your, your competition level may not be a lot today, but in two or three years, it might triple, it might quadruple. So being involved, knowing what's going on in the local politics with your hospital system or your group, understanding what changes are coming, understanding how reimbursement is going to be affected, et cetera, just getting involved will make you a stronger candidate for um, longevity. Um, as far as industry is concerned, don't shy away from your industry partners. Invite them. Give them an open-door policy. Have them come to your cases. Those first six months, maybe you don't remember how to deploy a LAMS because your attending always did it for you. Or maybe you were so focused on um, you know, putting that metal stent into the right hepatic duct and you had a phenomenal technician and now where you're going, you have a, a newbie, somebody who's never put a metal stent. In fact, you know, plastic stents hard for them. Well, maybe you didn't learn during your fellowship or you didn't have the opportunity or take the opportunity to learn how to deploy a metal stent. You know, none of this stuff is rocket science. We can all figure it out. You can read the manual and whatnot. But if your industry partners are there, it makes your life a lot easier. It helps you get your endo team up to stuff. You know, if you, you know, a lot of times people will be going into a place that, you know, has not historically done a lot of ERCP or doesn't do any EUS, and you're going to be the first one doing those cases in that institution or that part of your city. Well, you need the industry guys to help train these people. You can do it yourself, but, you know, what are you going to, how much are you going to take on? You're already, you know, growing a practice, trying to fit in, trying to learn the local politics, trying to make friends with primary care providers. And then on top of that, you have to teach your team on how to deploy certain stents and whatnot. And you should be able to teach them that. You should know how to do it yourself, but the industry can help you do that quite a bit. And I personally benefited a lot from allowing the industry partners uh, access to me and access to my department because, you know, I can just call them anytime and say, hey, Josh, or hey, um, hey, Joe, um, we just hired this new tech and uh, he's struggling or she's struggling with this procedure. Can you come over one day and just uh, go over it with them? And they will never say no. And um, because these guys... You know, every, a lot of people think, well, they're just reps. They just want to sell something. They want to make money. But that's not the truth. What, a lot of them are invested in their companies. They, they want to see their products do well. They don't want to give you something that doesn't work. And they certainly don't want you to have a device uh, that you think is junk just because you didn't know or your tech didn't know how to use it properly. So be open to them and use their abilities and their knowledge you'd be surprised and and hopefully uh you know you had that experience during your fellowship but if you didn't really is it's a good opportunity to to help yourself and help your team out um on that end also try to stay connected to academics especially if you're going to private practice one of the problems that i noticed in my first year of practice was um i really um, didn't realize how much I missed going to journal clubs and, and uh, M&Ms and, and things like that. And, you know, it's, it's harder if you're in private practice, but find a way to stay connected, whether that's through your societies, whether it's through local journal clubs or GI gut clubs or whatnot, 
Or if it's maybe, you know, there's a teaching program down the street that has grand rounds that you can go to, but stay connected, stay fresh with the information, know what's coming down the pipeline. Um, it's hard to read when life happens. It's hard to continue to read journal articles and we all are getting emails that inundate us. We get one from the ASGE every day that gives us their highlights. You get one from Doximity, one from ACG, one from Medscape, one from WebMD, whatever the hell it is, you're going to get a lot of information. It's very hard to keep abreast of it. But if you can get out there and listen to a lecture, attend a lecture, or even just listen to podcasts like this, thank you for listening, <laughs> uh, you, um, you, you can stay somewhat connected to the academic world. Um, I would also encourage uh, every interventional fellow who's graduating to invest some money in uh, recording your cases. You know, a lot of you guys will have some CME money and you can use that to buy your own personal devices for recording. And uh, my first podcast and it does talk a bit about uh, video recording. And I think, you know, in a few months, I'll probably repost that one and, and provide some updates to it. But, you know, video recording is going to be important. It's going to give you an opportunity to publish down the road. It's also going to give you an opportunity to look at quality improvement projects for your group, for yourself. And it also just, you know, for interesting cases, you can even use them for marketing. You can put them, you know, obviously de-identify, but you can put them on your group's website or a YouTube channel or something along those lines. Um, social media, you know, using all that can help. So I, th I think staying connected to academics and, and recording your case are two things that you really, really want to look into. Now, kind of a little bit more practical stuff from the business aspect of it. Uh, number one, <laughs> if you don't know how to use it, I would recommend learning how to use Outlook and learning how to use a Google Calendar or Samsung Calendar, Calendar, Apple Calendar, whatever it is you like to use. Um, really, really get that tuned in. And if you have a medical assistant or a nurse that uh, is involved in your scheduling, or if you have a scheduler, teach them how to use it, have them use it, live by that. Because, I mean, I'll be very honest with you. A lot of times I don't even know what I'm doing the next day until I go to bed and I set my alarm according to what my outlook says. You know, if I if my first case of the day is 9 a.m., I might sleep in until, you know, 7 or 6.30 or 7. And if my first case is at 7, I'm going to be getting up at 5.30, et cetera. So I think, you know, also knowing, you know, I, I go or I used to go to like four different locations. And, you know, the outlook would tell me, all right, tomorrow, such day, you're going to Queen Creek, Arizona, and you have your first visit at 8 a.m. Well, that's an hour away from my house. So, you know, to know that in the morning and in the evening before, uh, Outlook was a lifesaver. Obviously, you know, I'm a little bit more probably lackadaisical than some people. A lot of people are a little bit more type A about that. And they know three weeks in advance what they're going to do. But our group is pretty complicated in terms of our scheduling. And no two weeks are alike. Uh, to quote, you know, Forrest Gump, it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get from week to week in our group. And so the Outlook has been a lifesaver for me. I didn't use it well in the beginning. Once I learned how to use it, it was great. Um, monitor your volumes. This is really important for people who are on RVU models or productivity models, people who are going to be asked in the private world to produce a certain volume. And I say that hesitantly because no one is allowed to tell you this, but Many times your partnership and endocenters are tied into your productivity. 
nobody will ever put that in writing and tell you that because again, it's illegal, but, um, you need to know where you stand and you need to kind of know what the expectations for you will be, whether you're looking to achieve partnership in an ASC or a practice, or whether you're looking to hit certain RVU targets so that bonuses kick in and things like that. If you don't monitor your numbers, nobody's going to do it for you. The people who do do it are going to do it in a way that is advantageous to them. So be, just kind of know what you're doing. And um, there's plenty of different ways to monitor your volumes. You can always go into your EMR or your underwriter and write a report monthly. You can track the cases. You can do it old-fashioned way. Get a mold skin notebook and put patient stickers in there. But if you lose that, you've just violated a huge HIPAA law. Or there are several websites out there that let you log your cases and, um, and, and, and monitor those. The volumes are going to be important for, uh, you know, you, like I said, the financial aspect of it. But also, what if you leave your group and then, or you look for moonlighting opportunities? And they're going to say, send me your case logs for the last 12 months. They don't want your fellowship logs at that point. They want what you did in work. So make sure you have a way to monitor your volume. And like I said, it could be very simple. It could be into your electronic medical record system you don't have to do anything specific for it but it's there so just understand how to do that also really get involved in your billing um, learn your cpt codes download from boston scientific's website there's an endoscopy reimbursement guide if anybody needs it i can put a link to it or or you can you know, message me on uh, twitter or, or linkedin and, and and i'll be happy to share it with you but it's free Put that as a PDF on your phone. Uh, it serves two or three purposes. One is that every procedure you do in the interventional world will have a CPT code, and that's listed on there. Also, you'll have an idea of what the RBUs are for the procedure you did and what you should be making and what your hospital might be charging the patient or what your ASC might be charging the patient. So it's really, really valuable to have something along those lines. Um, I would even tell most of you guys to go ahead and take a course or a webinar at some point in the first six months when you're not super busy because you're not ever properly taught how to bill or how to code things as a fellow. And that's a huge, huge problem in the business aspect of medicine. I think we're always taught to be altruistic and, you know, don't worry about the money, et cetera. But the reality is that you know, and, and there is a business aspect to medicine, and if you choose to ignore it, you're just going to harm yourself at the end of the day. Hospital systems, private equity groups, they're in it to make money. They're in it to get that money off of you. But you need to take care of yourself, and you need to know what you, what, what your um, value is and what you're really doing correctly. I also would recommend meeting with your coders. Many of you will be going into situations where the coders have never billed a TIF procedure or they've never billed an ESD. Heck, they might not even know that there's a separate CPT code for EMR versus polypectomy. And that's interesting because if they don't know that and they charge incorrectly, you'll lose 50% of your revenue for your center and 50% of your revenue for yourself. So if you're on a target where you have to produce a certain dollar amount or RBU component and you're not aware of these things, you're going to be harming yourself in the long run. And no one's ever going to give you credit for things that, you know, oh, you know, they, they didn't know and they made a mistake and it was a, a year ago. And when it comes time for discussions about pay raises or pay stability or, 
or um, partnership promotions, etc. Nobody ever will go back and say, oh yeah, we made a mistake the first six months because we didn't know what you were doing and we didn't code it correctly. They're just going to keep you, it's, it's a cruel world. They're just going to give you the credit for what they want to give you the credit for. So be aware, be involved, understand that. Um, meet with your coders, explain what you do. Talk to your industry reps again. Uh, for example, if you are um, trying to do a procedure like a TIFF procedure. Well, they may have resources that they can share that, you know, these are the type of letters that we give insurance companies to get these procedures approved. Or maybe there's a justification letter for why you're billing a certain dollar amount. Because a lot of times what we're going to be doing as interventionists, I'd say about 10% of the time, your cases are going to be what are called unlisted codes. And an unlisted code is, an ESD is an example of that, it's a code that, you know, you are using because there isn't a specific one for that procedure. So, for example, EMR and polypectomy have codes, but ESD doesn't. So, an unlisted code is what you would use. And then the letter would justify what dollar amount your organization is going to be asking the insurance to pay. So, um, actually, I'm going to take the ESD one off the table for a second. I'm going to use necrosectomy. You know... If you don't have a letter to justify it, they're going to bill as an EUS with an FNA, okay? Then maybe that's all right. But if that necrosectomy was done by a surgeon, the dollar paid by the insurance company is a lot different, significantly different. So if you have an unlisted code and you have a letter that can justify that, you know, I'm doing a necrosectomy, which is the same work as what a surgeon is doing to when they do a necrosectomy, it's the same procedure, um, it's safer for the patient, et cetera, et cetera. And however you want to word it, it's fine. And therefore, you know, and I'm going to make up random numbers. Um, a surgeon's asking for $2,000 for a necrosectomy. We're going to ask for 1000 And if they gave you any US FNA code, they would only be giving you like $250, you know, for, for the physician fee. So again, it's not all about money, but if you're working and you, you should be paid what you're worth and you should know how to ask for it in a legal and appropriate way so many of the industry people have pre-written letters and, and if not you can ask some of your colleagues around the country what do you use to justify for this procedure and you should keep that in a folder in an in, in electronic folder so that when you do do these procedures that have these codes you can give those to the coders so that they can justify billing it correctly and avoiding a denial so that's a lot of information about the billing but long story short, <laughs> be involved in the billing. Make friends with your medical assistant and your office manager. You know, um, make sure you treat them right and, 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 you know, get them coffee from time to time. They will make your life so much easier if they are, you're on their good side. Your medical assistant and your scheduler, I mean, they are the ones who are going to, they can make or break you. If you've got a medical assistant who doesn't really care or doesn't isn't invested um, your your life and your work life balance is going to be horrible. But if you got somebody who cares and somebody who's you know wants to work well with you, um, <clears throat> your your life will be a lot smoother as a practicing physician. Also, learn your medical record system. You know, regardless of which company it is whether it's Cerner or Epic or if it's uh, the one I use, which is G Gastro, or if it's any other ones, you know, e-clinical works, et cetera, learn how to use it and learn all the tricks and other trade. And again, your first six months, you're not going to be super busy. This is a great time to do all that. Uh, get out and meet people. 
you know, it's it's nice to meet other GIs and primary care physicians. Practice can be a lonely place, especially when you come out of a busy fellowship and you join a group and maybe you're younger than everybody by 5, 10, 15 years. And, and you might not have, and you don't have that same camaraderie in, in, in work, in the, in the workplace that you did in fellowship. You don't have a table of your colleagues uh, sitting together at lunchtime and, and, you know, complaining about attendings like myself or other people, you know, you, you don't have that bonding that happens in training. So get out there and meet, meet people, you know, and, 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 and try to create new relationships and bonds. Um, a small little tip is uh, join Doximity if you haven't and get your free fax number. Um, while you'll probably be using your um, office's fax number for the majority of things, imagine you're on rounds and uh, you're in the hospital you can choose to get the old records or the old colonoscopy or whatever from another facility faxed to the nurse's station where somebody may or may not pick it up. Somebody else may pick it up and think it's junk and shred it, and it may never make its way to the chart and you may never see it. Versus giving them your quote-unquote personal fax, which again is free, and you can get it in proximity, and you can get those records faxed to your phone in a HIPAA-compliant way. So take ownership of that and get that. Um, for the EMR or for telemedicine, write your templates ahead of time, you know, or borrow them from people that you trust. Templates meaning, you know, a discussion about EUS and the risks and the benefits. You don't need to dictate that or type that every single time you see a patient who needs an EUS. You want to be able to click a button and put a template and that's pre-populated, that's generic, that explains what you did. Obviously, you want the specific things to be, you know, accurate, but um, when you're when you're just doing uh, random stuff and uh, things that are uh, repeated over and over in, the, in a day and in a week, you have templates ready for that. Um, so I, I think you know those are some of the things. Um, oh yeah, one more thing: get all your mentors. Uh, at least two of your mentors uh, should be on speed dial. There's going to be a time in the first six months or maybe two where you're in a complicated situation. And you're going to look over your shoulder to hand the scope or ask a question uh, to, of your attending. And you're going to look over that left shoulder and then you're going to look over the right shoulder and you're going to realize the only person standing there is your tech who's maybe doing that procedure for the first time. And they're looking at you quizzically and you're looking back at them. So keep the number on speed dial. Use your mentors. They're going to love to answer questions for you. I, I really enjoy any time a fellow calls me and says, hey, I'm doing this case. What would you think? Um, you know, so, so keep, keep at least two mentors on speed dial, you know, your wife and kids first on the thing, maybe your best friend, maybe your parents, and then maybe, and then after that, put, you know, one or two attendings that you can just say, Hey, call Dr. Das or call Dr. Such Dave. And, uh, and, and then you can ask a question of, of them. Um, yeah. So in, in summary, I think, you know, for those of you who are graduating and going on to your next gig, um, congratulations. Yeah, you know, you, you deserve it. But some of these tips, you know, most of them you may already know, but some of them are going to be very helpful for you uh, so that you have a smooth transition. But also remember one thing, too, that 50% of you guys will not be in this job five years later. You'll be in another one. It's not a failure to leave a group, and there's no special reward for staying with, in, in the, with a group. Uh, for longer than you need to. It's a marriage, right? And not all marriages work out. 
unfortunately. And not all jobs are going to work out. A good number are. And, and when they do work out, that's fantastic. But, you know, be aware that you may not be in that job in five years, and that's okay. But make it as smooth as you can on yourself. Um, so thank you so much for listening. Um, again, I'm always available on Twitter or LinkedIn, so feel free to reach out. And, um, you know, I'll do my best to answer and talk and, and guide you. Through this podcast, I've had the luxury and the um, uh, privilege to talk to two complete strangers who are fellows um, and gave them some advice on things that they were looking to do. Um, a future podcast, I think the next episode, I'll probably do in a week or so. Um, I'm going to gear that towards um, you're in your fourth year fellowship or in your third year of your general GI fellowship and you're looking for a job. So I'm going to probably talk a little bit about uh, job search and things like that. Um, I have some nice tips for uh, young physicians or early career physicians about um, how to do that. Uh, once again, you know, uh, join your societies, ASGE, fight the two societies that are um, more geared towards interventional endoscopists, but also be part of AGA if you can and ACG. It gets expensive and hopefully your practice will pay for that, but that's something to work, you know, work towards. And finally, you know, every uh, podcast, my last thing I've mentioned has been mental health. You know, I'm fairly active on Twitter and over the last five or 10 days, uh, a lot of people have been um, posting about this young woman, uh, Dr. Nikita Mortimer out of New York, who um, was struggling and uh, was hurting apparently. And she unfortunately took her own life. Um, and, you know, reach out. Don't let it get to that level. Um, there's always some solution or way to sort things out, no matter what it is. I, I don't know what she was dealing with. I don't know her personally, but so many people have been reaching out and, and hashtagging her and, and apologizing on behalf of the House of Medicine, etc. So if you are in that situation personally, or if you know somebody who's struggling, just reach out. Don't don't let that happen. It's it's every day or every week we're reading about another young or old physician who's um, just can't take it any longer. And um, yeah, so let's try not to be statistics and let's reach out to our friends and colleagues and, and be there for them. So um, Thank you again, and um, I look forward to the next one. So hopefully this is uh, helpful to a lot of you guys. And as uh, a lot of people say, so long until next time.